hopefully you have found the notes on your table. And yes, we are in the book of Acts as we started last week. And one thing I want to remind you once again as we study the book of Acts is to remember that this is a historical document. Okay, So just because it's in the book of Acts or just because something is in your Bible doesn't mean that's what you're supposed to be doing. The Bible is an accurate document. Sometimes it depicts people that are lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, whatever. Some prophets say that they're prophesying for God when they're not. So you just got to be real careful. And this is one of those areas where when you're studying the book of Acts, you remember you're watching a historical document. You're reading a historical document on how the early apostles were learning how to flesh out this life of faith in God and faith in Yeshua. And just like Susan was sharing with our kids just prior, um, now this relationship with Yeshua has shifted from a physical relationship to seeing Yeshua go up into heaven and they're praying and things. And so, you know, how, how does all this work? And so we're going to continue this story. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we're going to look at something that people take, um, uh, that they debate about. Uh, of course, people debate about the Bible everywhere, but this is a very fascinating passage that we're going to get into. We're going to pick up at verse 9. We're going to go through the end of this chapter uh, and that this is a this is a very highly debated text, not on its accuracy, but what it means. So <clears throat> Yeshua has just now ascended into heaven. We'll pick up in verse 9. And it says, And having said this, while they were looking on, he was taken up, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they were gazing into heaven, as he went up, see... Two men stood by them dressed in white, who also said, Men of Galilee or Galil, why do you stand looking up into the heaven? This same Yeshua who was taken up from you into heaven shall come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, into the heavens. Then they went back to Jerusalem or Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. You might want to underline that from the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> That'll tell you where they were when he went up. He was on the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Um, and it says, and when they came in, they went into the upper room where they were staying, both Kepha or Peter and Yaakov, Yanan, that's John, uh, Andrew or Andrew, Philip, Toma or Thomas, Bartholomew or Bartholomew, Mattathiu or Mattathias, Yaakov the son of Alphi, Simeon the zealot, and Yehuda the son of Yaakov. And these were all continuing with one mind in prayer and supplication with the women and Miriam the mother of Yeshua and his brothers. So I want to stop there and uh, want to look at this. So. They've been meeting with Yeshua for about 40 days. We talked about that last week. He's teaching them about the kingdom. And he's talking to them, and while he's talking and telling them, you're gonna, you need to wait in Jerusalem, then the Spirit will come upon you. You'll have power. You'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and the farthest part of the earth. We talked a lot about that last week, about that's not just a geographical thing, the way we typically take that. Uh, it's because why salvation comes through the Jews, uh, because that's the nation that he chose to reveal himself to the world. We talked about that. So it says, so having said this, he was taken up in a cloud, and they were gazing up in the heavens. Can you just, you have to try to get into their mindset. He's been telling them, I'm going to go back to the Father. You have to remember now, during these 40 days, from what we assume and certain things we've already read, there were times when he just kind of poof showed up. They're in a room, it's locked, all of a sudden he's just there. I'm not too sure they understood beforehand that he's going to, you know, he's just going to kind of float up into the sky. Can you imagine the shock? You know, he's not going up in some hot air balloon. You know, he's not, you know, E.T. didn't phone home, come get him, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he just, he goes up into the clouds. You know, what would you and I do? I'd be going, okay. He said he's going up and he's coming back. Not too sure how long he's going to be up there, but I'm going to stand here and wait until he comes back, right? I mean, I would, that's what I'd have been doing. And then all of a sudden these angels show up and are like, dudes, what are y'all doing? Why are you staring at the heavens, you know? In other words, almost like, hello, what did he just tell you? Go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem and wait. So uh, a couple of things you need to jot these down because that, or in other words, why would he, do, why would he ascend back into heaven at, Mount, at the Mount of Olives? It's a pretty, prom, pretty important place. At the Mount of Olives is also where the Garden of Gethsemane is. This is where he was praying the night he was arrested. Okay, it's the place he went to often to pray and to pray at night. And the Mount of Olives, it says in here, you know, it's uh, let me go back and look. It says that it, it, it's about uh, a Sabbath day's journey. A lot of people want to get off onto that, you know, and really look. It was just a phrase to talk about how far it was. That was about half a mile. Okay, that's all he's saying is that it, 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 it's about half a mile there. And as a matter of fact, when you're standing on the Mount of Olives, there's the big ravine in between the two. You're standing there and you're looking right down onto the Temple Mount, looking at all of that, the Dome of the Rock, everything. You're, you're a little bit catty corner and you can see the southern side uh, of the, the Mount of Olives, the the embankment, if you will, the <clears throat> retaining wall is what you're really looking at. And you're looking at the eastern gate that's walled up that it says he's going to walk, march back through. But why would he go there and why ascend into heaven there? I mean, why not do it there in Jerusalem? Why not happen there instead of on the Mount of Olives? Well, there's some reasons. Uh, you need to jot this down. First of all, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Let me read it for you. It says, See, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him. Yes, and amen. So 
this is just one of many, but we need to remember is that Jesus, Yeshua, is also physically coming back. This is what the angel tells them. Why are you staring at the skies in the same way he went up into heaven, the same way he's going to be coming back? So they watched him levitate, basically. He's floating up into the sky, and it kind of goes into a cloud and disappears. I don't know if that was a low-hanging cloud or a high-hanging cloud. Don't care. He floated up and went into the heavens and didn't come back. The Scriptures tells us that in the same way, just like these angels, he's physically coming back. But where? He's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. That's found in Zechariah 14, verse 4. It says that in that day, his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. I just shared that with you. When you're standing there, you're looking at the eastern side. So if sunrise is coming up and you're looking at the Mount of Olives, it's coming up over your back. I had the pleasure of seeing that sunrise one day many years ago. And it says, And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Meaning there's then going to be a ravine, another ravine, going north to south. So it's going to be split, right? It's going to be split in two from the east to west in a great valley and half of the mountain shall move, I'm sorry, half, yeah, half the mountain's going to move towards the north, and half of it's going to move towards the south. So the ravine is actually running east to west. The split is going to go from north to south. It's going to cause the ravine to be running east to west, directly into Jerusalem. Well, in my studies over the past, uh, I don't know, few months, uh, one of the things I ran across which I found extremely fascinating. You remember how we've been talking here for a long time that what has happened will happen? Um, and, and that will happen on multiple levels. We're all okay with that, right? Because we've talked a lot about it. Just like the first exodus and another exodus, um, so on and so forth. One of the theories is... And I think it's very plausible because during the time of the tribulation, this is what's talking about here in Revelation uh, in Zechariah 14, 4, right? Because it's at the time when Yeshua comes back. So that's during the tribulation period. The people of Israel, and in particular Jerusalem, are going to be under siege and attacked. Yeshua shows up, and what happens? He splits the earth. One of these theories, I'm not, not going to get off into it tonight, was that the reason he's going to do that is because they are now going to be trapped there in Jerusalem, and he's going to open a path for them to escape. It's taken out of Revelation 12 where it talks about, and the earth rescues them and that kind of thing. I thought it was fascinating. Um, in other words, I don't think Yeshua is going to come back, stand on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split into you know, just as a sign to say, hey, I'm here. He never does that. It all has a reason. Uh, and I thought that was very, I thought it was very plausible. When I, when I saw that and was reading and looking into it, I went, that's not impossible. 
That's actually pretty fascinating. And that God would then consume those that are trying to destroy his people the same way he did it with the Red Sea. I just thought it was very fascinating. Uh, The other thing that we need to remember is this. You need to jot these down because they're staring into the heavens and he's saying, look, don't, don't just stand here and stare. He told you he's coming back. You need to go to Jerusalem like he told you. That's basically what the angels are saying. But what we need to remember is this. In Philippians, this is Paul speaking, Philippians 3.20, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we are awaiting a Savior, our Master, Yeshua, the Messiah. We're waiting on our Savior because He's what? Seated at the right hand of the Father right now. You look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. And it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Yeshua, who is coming, is going to deliver us from the wrath that's coming. Folks, his deliverance is really from two wraths. One is the wrath of Satan that's being unleashed on the earth. And the other is he's coming and he has already delivered us from God's wrath. Amen? And then you look at 2 Thessalonians. Once again, it's chapter 1, verse 10. And it says, And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, that could be us or would be, will be us, whether we're alive or not in this flesh, And to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Here's what you need to grasp, or what we need to try to grasp. Paul here is describing when Yeshua comes, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. It's going to get split. We're waiting on the Son to come who is our deliverer, our Savior, is going to rescue us from this wrath. And that when he comes, he describes who's going to be marveling. Us. His glory is going to be so great, we're going to be in awe. Just in awe of Him showing up in all of His glory. So here's what I want you to also try to wrap our our brains around. They've been with Yeshua For 40 days, off and on, he's been teaching them. He's been telling them. He's been reinstating Peter and all that stuff that happened, right? He showed up on the the shore and fed them and had breakfast waiting on them. I mean, all, all these miracles have been going on. Now they've actually seen him depart into heaven and it says uh, in verse 13, verse 12, it said, you know, they, they go back uh, to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It's a half mile. It's, you know, it's a 10-minute walk. It's a 10, 15-minute walk. It's not, not far. And in verse 14, it says, and all these were continuing with one mind in prayer and supplication with the women, with Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, and his brothers. 
there's a few things I want you to think about. Don't, don't you like, or I, hope, I think you're like me, that you want to be with like-minded people. And don't you even get tired of the insanity and stuff that's out there and you're like, I just want to be around like-minded people. But isn't that hard? I hate to break the news to you, but it's even difficult for this small group to be like-minded 24-7. You know why? Well, at some point, maybe you're having a baby and you're like, don't touch me, don't talk to me, don't breathe on me, get away from me, right? It's like, right? Or you've got work issues or time issues or time constraints or you've got shoulder or health issues that you're dealing with, whatever it is. Uh, and it's just difficult. So maybe you're busy. We got families here with young kids that are in drama, sports. We got some in here that are now band parents. We've done that. You know, sometimes you find out that you're going to the school for the fifth time in the same day. <laughs> Anybody here other than me already done that? You know, you're like, yeah. And some that are here that are doing it. And so you can get stressed out, right? And not necessarily, it's not that you don't love one another. It's just like, look, I don't have time right now. My brain's full. I'm tired. I mean, the computer right here is about to crash. I got files that are going and it's my, my CPU ain't working just right, right? And, and you can go into brain overload and you're like, whatever. And you, part of your body's hurting and kids just cut their finger and you had to go get stitches and the list goes on and on, right? And so it's just very, very hard to be like-minded. Except or unless we all simultaneously go through the same, I'll use the word catastrophic or whatever, event. 9-11-2001. Our country was supposedly, you know, unified. Um, everybody was at least glued and everybody was at least feeling like this is on our dirt. That has never happened. Not even during World War II did we have something like, you, you know what I'm saying? So everybody was, you know, like-minded. If you go way back to maybe the victory of World War II, everybody was really like-minded, that kind of thing, because everybody was going through this event. What about maybe even on a smaller scale where a city or a community goes through something like a tornado or a hurricane or like down in Houston where all this massive flooding, uh, you know, or in your neighborhood and a tornado goes through and everybody is dealing with it collectively, right? And so everybody's kind of of one mind, right? And it's a lot easier at the, in those moments to be like-minded when you're in the midst of the situation and you're dealing with similar things and you have similar, at least, emotions. Everybody's looking at it from a different perspective, but you have very similar emotions. 
These people just had their world turned upside down, inside out, backwards and, and forwards. I mean, their whole world view has been radically changed even from just a little over a month ago when they thought they understood it and then it was transformed and then Yeshua shows up and then it's transformed and now they're standing there going, uh, he said, go to Jerusalem, I uh, can't move. <laughs> you know, because you're just like, uh, I can't, can't handle it anymore. So they go back to Jerusalem, like he said, and they're going to do what? Well, they're going to pray, right? This is real important to catch this part, what I'm going to try to explain. I believe that these people that are praying at this moment are probably at the most pure, most innocent, most sincere spiritual moment in their lives, at least up to that point where there, there, there is no ego, there hasn't been one ministry started yet, so we're not getting into the, the competing. We'll see that later. Um, nobody cares about anything other than, well, we just love Jesus. We just love Yeshua. Uh, he's coming back. Maybe now. They didn't know. Uh, he told us to wait. We're going to wait. Uh, while we're waiting, let's pray. I can guarantee you there wasn't one dissenting vote among them. They were like, yeah, uh, how can I help? They were loving each other, hugging on each other. Nobody was offended about anything. I mean, they're, so are we okay on that? I don't think that's much of a stretch. It says they were all of one mind and they were praying. And it says, oh, who all was there? And then it makes mention and his brothers. If you remember, you can jot this down, John 5, 7. Uh, earlier on in his ministry, even his own family didn't believe that he really was God. At this point, evidently, Yeshua has revealed himself to his own family, um, and his brothers are going... You know, I don't know that I really like being that upstaged, upstaged that much by my bigger brother. But I got to confess, I guess he really was God. <laughs> right? And so they're there also praying, watch this, to their brother. I mean, I've gone back to work with my brother. I love my brother. It's a real help to me and my family. It's, it's all fine and good. But my brother's not God. <laughs> They're praying to their brother. Right? They're all, everybody's good. What are the chances that they're going to do the right thing? I think it's extremely high, right? So it says that in those days, so this, this wasn't just a one-time thing. This is going on for days that they're staying there praying. They're praying together. It's not just a one-time little deal. It's going to last a little bit of time. It says, in those days, Kepha, 
Peter, he stands up in the midst of the disciples, the taught ones, and there was a gathering of about 120, more or less. And this is what he said. Men and brothers, the scripture had to be filled, which the set-apart spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Yehuda or Judas, who became a guide to those who seized Yeshua. Because he was numbered with us and did receive his share in this service. This one, therefore, purchased a field with the wages of, of unrighteousness, and falling forward, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it came, became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem and Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakadamah or Hakadamah, uh, that is the field of blood. For it has been written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling lie waste and let no one live in it and let another take his office. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have been with us all the time that the master Yeshua went in and out among us, beginning from the immersion of John or Yohanan, to that day when he was taken up from us, that one of these should become witnesses with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two. Yosef, called Barsaba, who was also called Justice, and Mattathiahu, Mattathias in your ESV version. And praying, they said, you... Yahovah, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to receive the share of this service and office of the emissary or apostle from which Yehuda by transgression fell to go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Mattathiah and he was numbered with the 11 emissaries or apostles. So here's the deal. So they come up with two, Joseph and Mattathias. And they cast lots. It's basically like throwing dice. That's what the, the priest would also do this to try to find out what God's will was. So this isn't something they dreamed up. I'm not saying this was sinful or whatever. Uh, they did what they grew up knowing about. <clears throat> and they prayed. Do you think their prayer was honest and sincere? And that they looked among, and do you think that the solution that they came up with was an honest and good and sincere solution? I do. Um, there's one thing I want you to notice, though, about this that's very interesting. It doesn't say that Peter stood up filled with the Holy Spirit and thus said, what it says is that in those days, Peter stood up and he says, you know what? This scripture needs to be fulfilled, which said this through the prophet speaking through David. And then he starts quoting some things out of Psalms. And these quotes out of Psalms are, man, they're horrific. And he's talking about that he thinks that David was actually prophesying about Judas. 
and that how Judas betrayed Jesus and betrayed him with a kiss. And you can find a lot of this stuff in the Psalms. My point is not trying to chase that down so much as much as to say you can do that. When you go through the gospel accounts, you find two different uh, records about Judas and his death. One says that he fell down on the rocks, burst open. Another one says he hung himself. The prominent uh, understanding in dealing with that supposed controversy uh, is that he tried to hang himself from a tree, the limb broke, and he fell. That's not, very, that's not a far stretch to say that that's what happened. <clears throat> but here's what's interesting. So they cast lots and it fell to Mattathias, Right? You never hear his name again. You never hear his name again. We do hear a lot about Paul, and that's what we're going to look at here in just a second. I've got a lot of verses for you to write down. We're going to look at Paul, who is what? Nobody even doubts he's an apostle, right? But he's not part of this crowd, which was a big problem that he had to deal with. So the question is, so then were these apostles wrong in their decision? Did God know they would do this? Yes. So are there now 12 apostles or 13? Is it okay if I ask questions that makes us think? Um, Jesus said... That, there were, that the 12 apostles would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel when he was talking to the apostles when Judas was there. Now the apostles are realizing we have a problem. He picked 12. There's 12 tribes. It's going to be 12 leaders over the 12 tribes. Judas is gone. <laughs> the betrayer. We need somebody else. So they're thinking, naturally, we need to pick somebody that's been with us from the beginning, from the time uh, Jesus was baptized to the time he goes up into heaven. Well, you and I thought there was only the 12 guys running around, right? This is also telling us that there was a larger crowd there from day one, from the baptism, not just the 12 there was a larger crowd, and large enough that they, they could look and say, we need to pick two, and they found two that fit that description. And they pick them, and then they say, okay, now God, you need to show us which one you've chosen. And they throw the dice. Well, it's got to land on one of them, right? There's only two, and typically... They would, you know, they would either say, you know, which way it's going to land. It's kind of heads or tails. Your heads, your tails. Okay? And it says, and it fell to Mattathias. And then it says, and he was numbered among the apostles. I want you to, we're going to look at a couple of verses, but you need to understand that for the rest of their ministry, even though we don't hear anything about Mattathias, he was considered part of the twelve. Um, a number of things I want you to see. And here's one. Acts chapter 2, we'll get there next week, but Acts chapter 2, verse 14. It says, but Kepha standing up with the 11. So that means who was standing up with him? 
Mattathias. The 11 plus Peter makes 12. He lifted up his voice and he said to them, men of Yehuda and all those dwelling in Jerusalem, let this be known today and listen closely to my words. This is when he's about to preach, you know, the Acts chapter two passage and, you know, Pentecost and that, that kind of thing. I just want you to see that he's standing up with the 11. We understand that the apostles saw Mattathias as a legitimate replacement to Judas. You go to Acts chapter 6, verse 2. It says, so the 12 summoned the group of disciples, taught ones, and said, it is not pleasing for us to leave the word of God and serve tables. This is when they're going to elect deacons. And Stephen becomes one of those that are elected as the first deacons. And I just want you to see here because it says, the 12, not 11, not 11 plus Matthias has to be part of this 12. Um, They have no reason to doubt that he should be one of the 12. However, there's not one reference to Mattathias after his appointment. You know, then we've got the problem with this Apostle Paul guy. I mean, after the Gospels and after the book of Acts, he writes most of what we have in our New Testament. Most of our doctrinal content that we gather out of the New Testament comes from the Apostle Paul, who Peter said was hard to understand. We've been over that. So the question is then, is Paul a legitimate or illegitimate apostle? It's actually good that we're asking this question, and I'm going to show you why, because it's, I think it's, well, it's just, once again, it's fascinating. The Word of God is just fascinating, isn't it? Uh, and it leads us into all truth. So I want you to, I've got a number of verses here. You need to jot these down. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. It says, am I not free? This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Are you hearing this now? You seeing this now? This is something he was constantly fighting, but I want you to see it's fascinating. You are my seal of apostleship in the Lord, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter and Cephas? They were taking their wives with them, going out in the ministry and taking them with them. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right and to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends to the flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So now he's even referring to the Torah and saying this is all true. He's just like, the problem was people were badgering him about taking any kind of money while doing the ministry. And he's like, really? 
uh, do I not have the right to do that? And doesn't the law even say that that's permissible for a minister or for him, an apostle? And he goes, am I not an apostle? Am I not free to do this? Why am I even being examined and questioned on this? Man, the apostle Paul was hounded by everybody. The, the Jews that were not believers in Yeshua hated him. The Yehudim, we talked about in the book of John. There were a select group of Jewish believers that also hated him because they were saying, you can't be doing this. You got to tell people to convert to Judaism or they can't get saved. In other words, you can only get saved if you're a Jew. And they had it all messed up. Uh, and, just, and, and then you got the church, even the Gentiles in the church, use it, that phrase that way, that they didn't trust him. Rightfully so, because he was killing them. <coughs> and now he's preaching the same gospel. So he's just challenged on all different levels. And in here, in his own defense, he keeps saying, am I not a legitimate apostle? Have I not seen Yeshua? I have. Fascinating, right? Now look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> I want you to see his attitude on this and what he keeps saying over and over and over again. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Who is that jab at? Right? Rightfully so. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches at Galatia. So when he's doing his introduction to his letter to the Galatians, he says, I'm an apostle, but I'm not an apostle because somebody, some man picked me. I'm an apostle picked by God through Jesus Christ, through Yeshua the Messiah. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jot this one down so you can go look at it again later. Verses 6 through 11. This is where now he's going to describe his calling and ministry as an apostle stating his defense basically on why he's a legitimate apostle. This is fascinating. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 to 11. He says, Then he appeared to more than 500. He's talking about Yeshua. 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. <laughs> Wow. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was, in, that was with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Man, he is hammering it here, talking about, man, God, Jesus appeared to me as one untimely born, and he, he admits, I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I was murdering them. But you know what? Like it or not, I am what I am. Meaning, I can't change what I saw, what I know, what I heard, what I was taught, 
what I, what I was commissioned to do. And if you don't like it that I'm an apostle, I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to take that up with God. You might not like it. You might hate me. You might fight me. I'm going to keep going because I know what I saw. I know what happened to me. I'm not going to stop preaching what I know is the truth, even if everybody hates me. Wow. Look at this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. It says, For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. He's telling them, once again, this is, these are in the introductions. This is why reading the introduction to these letters is important. It's not fluff. Which is why I'm suffering as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day which he has entrusted to me. So many times we take that verse 12 and we apply it to us personally. I, you know, I, I am not ashamed of the gospel and I'm trusting him who's entrusted this to me, blah, blah, blah. And that's all fine. I think we can apply that personally. But Paul's talking about the fact that I'm an apostle appointed by God and I'm going to trust God who's appointed me and I'm not trusting people. Pretty cool, huh? Then you go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 verse 1. Here again, it's still in the introduction. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Over and over and over again, Paul refers to himself as an, appointed, as an apostle appointed by God and not by men. He knows what he was told, he knows what he saw, and he can't change that based on what others thought of him. I, I have to admit, I, I take encouragement in that. I know what God has showed me from his word, even if people hate hearing it. Even if it goes against their norm and their cultural Christian upbringing, and they go, that's not what I heard, that's not what I was taught. I'm like, well, you're going to have to do what you can to get the scales off your eyes. All I know is that this is what the word of God says, and I'm not going to bend the word of God to help people feel good about themselves. I'm just not going to do it. Now look at this um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, another introductory statement by Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Again and again, he says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He says that over and over and over again, by the will of God and not by men. Now I'm not, we, I've got another one to look at that is absolutely fascinating. I'm not saying that what Peter and the apostles did was quote-unquote wrong. I am saying it's interesting. And the correlation to something else is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. But before we get into that, I want you to see something that's amazing. In Galatians, back in Galatians again, chapter 1, Paul is still describing his conversion experience, his teaching, learning what God did with him. It's absolutely off the charts fascinating. It's, it's in verses 11 through 20, Galatians chapter 1, 11 through 20. Pay attention to this. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. 
for I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah. Watch this. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Hold on. But I went away to Arabia. Huh. Right? I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that would be Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw no one of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And look at this. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Before we get into, can you pull up that picture for me, Bammer? I want to show you. Why would he go to Arabia? Why in the world would Paul, who was Saul, you talk, he, he was being set up to become really high in the priestly order. Okay, exactly. So I want you to see something. This is Arabia, Saudi, or Saudi Arabia. You know why it's called Saudi Arabia? Well, this is the Arabian Peninsula. When the Ottoman Empire was split up from World War I, Arabia just had all these tribes everywhere. Go watch the movie Lawrence of Arabia. They were trying to solidify this area because they had carved up the Ottoman Empire. They thought, once again, there's geniuses in the world that try to manipulate everything, but God is really behind everything. The reason it's called Saudi Arabia is because the family of the Saudis started to become more prominent, and then they were propped up by, if you will, the League of Nations, Britain, America, others, to help them become rulers because they did not have a kingly ancestry. They were just one of these tribes. So then they gained control over the whole peninsula with world support because they wanted their help. Now that's why it's called Saudi Arabia, Saudi of Arabia, the Saudis of Arabia. Now it's called Saudi Arabia. This is where Paul went. He went to Arabia. Where? If you look up there at the very, very top, you'll see that red dot. 
You can go on Google Maps and you can type in Jabul El Luz. Folks, that's the original Mount Sinai. And on Google Maps, you can zoom in. You can find Moses' altar. You can go just to the other side of it. You can find the rock that was split where the water came out. You can find the place where Moses kept all the animals for the sacrificial system. All that stuff that was happening right there at the real, that's the real Mount Sinai. And that's why when they crossed and they came out of where? In Egypt, up there at the top, in Goshen, and they went through the wilderness and then they crossed, that's technically called the Gulf of Aqaba. And you can see the place where they crossed. Technically, this is the Red Sea, so it's part of the Red Sea. And you can see exactly where the Bible is true when it says they were trapped by the mountains and the sea and couldn't get out. Because when they go there and there's this, this area where they can get through these mountains and it's a mountain pass where it's very, very narrow and it opens up to this big uh, beach area and the mountains come right down to the sea. That's how Pharaoh was coming right behind them and they were trapped and then God sent the fire and kept them from coming and he split the Red Sea, but what he split was that part of the Gulf of Aqaba and you can see right where they went through. So what, what, the reason I'm bringing this up is because you can see Israel's just right up there. It's not that far. The people at the, at the time of the New Testament, they understood where this was. The people in that area to this day refer to that as the mountain of Moses. We don't have time to chase all that. Why would he go there? Because he wants to hear from God. The man who is called by Yeshua on the road to Damascus, who was going there to kill and arrest quote-unquote Christians. Yeshua shows up. He gets the you know, scales on his eyes. He can't see. He saw him. He heard him. Nobody else could see him. This miracle happened, right? He knows that God showed up, and it was Yeshua who was crucified that he probably saw the crucifixion. And he knows that he's called as an apostle. So what does he do? He goes out here into the wilderness and he goes to Mount Sinai. And what did he just tell us? And he says, I'm telling you, I'm not lying about this. He goes, I wasn't taught this gospel by any person. God gave it to me through a revelation. Where? Mount Sinai in Arabia. It says, then he went back where? He went back to Damascus. It was a span of three years of him being in the wilderness and in Damascus where he is taught from what we understand from the Apostle Paul personally by Yeshua himself. <laughs> right? Right? So here's the deal. Now, now here's the quandary. 
So how do we deal with this? These godly apostles that love Jesus, he just ascended into heaven. Man, they threw the dice. They prayed with a pure heart. God, show us who you want to replace Judas. Mattathias. Okay, he's one of the 12. And then Jesus shows up not that long later and goes, nah, I don't think so. It's going to be Paul. And he's going to irritate you guys to no end, but it's going to be Paul. And so he calls Saul and changes his name to Paul, and he becomes, if you will, the apostle. So are there 12 or 13? I don't know. I don't care. But you know what's fascinating? How many tribes are there? Well, are there 12 or are there 13 tribes? Well, there's a lot of debate about that, isn't there? Right? You know what happened? So Joseph gets sold, ends up in Egypt. He's there. He ends up becoming what? The ruler in Egypt just under Pharaoh. His brothers come. All that stuff happens. We've studied that. His dad shows up, right? Jacob shows up and his name, you know, has changed to Israel, right? So Israel shows up. He's old. Before he dies, Joseph does what? He brings his two sons that have been born to him in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, right? Israel blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, you know, and Ephraim he makes greater even though Manasseh was born. And he goes, I know, I know, I know. He goes, but they will be as though they are my own children. So this is why there are numerous places in the Old Testament where the listing of the 12 tribes isn't consistent. And some will say, well, you know what, Dan, they committed this gross sin. They lost their right to be, uh, you know, one and all that. And I'm like, well, all that's fine, but still there were two boys. And I don't even agree with with that. So are there 12 or is there 13 or is there 14 tribes based on what Israel did and his blessing? And the 10 northern tribes over and over and over again by God himself are usually referred to as what? Ephraim. So there's, there's legitimacy here, right? There's a little confusion. It's none of our business. We worry so much about this numer, numerology stuff and everything, and all that's fine if you really need to know those details, but at the same time, we need to just relax and go, uh, God's in control and I'm not. Now watch this. Here's a flip side of this whole thing. So did the apostles make the wrong decision? I would say no and yes. What's the point in that? The point is this. These people were walking with... Can you find a group of people that could be any more right with God than these apostles and the women and the brothers, this big crowd of people that are in one mind, one accord, praying their hearts out before God, right before the Holy Spirit comes with, you know, fire and tongues and all that stuff. We'll get into that later. 
Can, could we ever find another group of people that could be any more right mind and focused and zoned in? This is what we're supposed to do. I would say no. Because later, these, these same apostles are going to be duking it out. They're going to be fighting and arguing, debating, clamoring. We'll, we'll see that as we march, through, because we need to remember this is a historical document. Have you, here's the point in that. Have you ever been honest with God and said, this is the decision I need. I've got to make a decision between this and this. This is all the information I got. So, and I've prayed about it. And I don't know if you threw dice. I don't know if you threw darts. I don't know if you threw open your Bible and closed your eyes. That's a dumb thing to do, but you know, and point to a verse. I don't know how you came up, but you come up with an answer, Right? A feeling, a voice, a, what, a calmness, all that. I believe all that's true and legitimate. And you make a decision, and it just didn't quite work out the way you thought it was going to. Is there anybody else other than me that could raise your hand real high and say, whoa, been down that road once or twice or 10 times or, or whatever, right? So was that the wrong decision and you just weren't walking with God? No. Not necessarily. Maybe you were going down Highway 66. And you knew you needed to be on I-30. You just couldn't figure out how to get over there. And so out of nowhere, God sticks up what happens in our county all the time, a roadblock that you weren't expecting. And he's like, well, what I need for you to do is I need you to take a right turn. And then you're going to have to go down this way and make another right turn. And then you're going to go over here and I'm going to run you through a residential neighborhood. And then you're going to make another right turn, you know. And then eventually I'm going to get you onto the highway. But to get you over there and to get you there safely, I needed you to make a few right turns that you thought were dumb detours or detours because you made a dumb decision. No. He needed us to be wherever he needed us to be because watch this, he's God, right? He's in control. The only thing you and I can do is we can make the best decision we can make before God with the information that we have today. That's it. And I don't believe God expects us to make a perfect decision with knowledge we don't even have. He wants us, more importantly, to trust Him. And that it's going to be okay. Anybody other than me ever make a decision you think, almost literally, I think I'm going to die, right? Or this is going to kill me, or right? Or my life's going to be over, or, you know, I'm going to be in financial ruin, or, you know, whatever. Are you still here? Right? You know, been to the pit and back, but you're still here? which means God's not through with you, and it's going to be okay. He wants us to trust Him and follow Him. And sometimes He's got a totally different plan. That's okay. Just keep moving forward. Evidently, the apostles constantly referred to and had Mattathias as part of their quote-unquote governing body. 
even though we don't hear anything at all about Mattathias. So was that the wrong decision? I believe he wasn't the apostle that God wanted. But it doesn't mean, it, mean that it was sinful or quote-unquote wrong. Does that make sense? God's going to use everything that happens. And they did the best they could to answer the question. Watch this. But when God showed up and answered the question differently, they did have a little bit of a difficulty accepting it because it didn't fit their paradigm. Watch this. They said the only person that can be an apostle is one that had to have been there all the time from the time of the baptism to the time of his ascension. Well, who gave them that idea? Once again, what we read was Peter stood up. Evidently, he'd been praying or they'd been, they'd been praying. Evidently, he's been thinking about this, knew the scriptures. And he's like, oh, well, this fits. Well, since this fits and maybe those prophecies are true about Judas, it's scary when you get into it. And it's, it's scary because it talks about let no one even sleep in their tents. Let their heritage be done, gone, vanished. I mean, it's, it's bad. Uh, but then they're like, well, but he said, you know, 12. So we need to, you know, so then that was the only parameters they had to deal with. You see what I'm saying? Can God still use that? Yes. But did he have Paul in mind? Evidently, yes, he did. So we get tripped up over, is it 12 or 13 or what, or and all these categories. And I'm like, you know what? God knows exactly what he's going to do and who he's going to do it with. And we don't need to be so worried about that. The personal application is God loves you. Yeshua came and died on the cross, died for our salvation. And there's going to be times when you're going to make a decision that you think is a bad decision. Can God even work through that? Yes, he can. Is God disappointed in you? I would say no. He knows. The scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them to him and to one another. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That was written by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Who's that written to? Us believers. So that when we mess up, when we sin, when we do the wrong thing, if we would just confess it, confess it, get right with God, it's going to be fine. He'll forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Man, I'm holding on to that one. Amen? God loves you. We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. What's encouraging? These are normal people. They're not any different from me or you. The same spirit that lives in you is the same spirit that lived in them. They're going to get into arguments. Anybody here other than me ever get into an argument? <laughs> Lately. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, not, they're going to have times when they're not, they're not even going to get along. Uh, they're going to part ways. All kinds of stuff. We're going to see all kinds of stuff. That's okay. They're just normal people. Folks, they're not in saints like we would typically think, like, okay, after they got the Holy Spirit, they didn't make any wrong decisions or have any problems or did they, were, they weren't sinless. 
Peter wasn't sinless. He wasn't the first pope. Uh, None of them were. They all made mistakes, as do you and I. But God still loved them, and He still loves you. He still loves me. He's still going to use us, still going to use you. Amen? Because He loves you.